For generations, Englishmen grew food on public land. They sustained their families with these gardens and with fish and animals they hunted and killed. Then almost overnight in the new industrial age, the commons were closed. It was made illegal to grow food and hunt and fish on public land. And the whole idea was to force laborers off the lands and into the burgeoning factories of the cities. You need a workforce, and if a workforce is able to sustain themselves in a rural area, they're not going to come to the cities and work for a wage. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how a Jamaican-born Londoner brought the radical idea of common land back to wage workers. But first, there was a time in London when bowling in the street and stealing a silk handkerchief were considered top felonies. Stories about these and more serious crimes were the bread and butter of Victorian newspapers, but they also veiled a political agenda. Ed Jacobs is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. He says newspapers have long been a battleground between the elite and the poor. Ed, how did you get first hooked on reading these fascinating passages in Victorian newspapers? Well, rather by accident, actually. I was basically just scrolling through microfilm of uh, 18th and 19th century newspapers, looking for book advertisements that would identify, you know, who published certain books. And then I started getting distracted. And I would see an advertisement for, you know, these strange medicines. And I would think, wait a minute, how many medicines did they need for, and I'm not kidding you, involuntary nocturnal seminal emissions, basically wet dreams, right? Evidently it was a problem because there were like three different medicines, you know, in one newspaper for it. Perhaps most famously, I came across an early report, and this is from the 18th century, actually, of a woman called Mary Toft, who was famous in the fall of 1724 for allegedly giving birth to rabbits. She's come to be called Rabbit Woman among people who read too many old newspapers. So newspapers were fundamental to not only the formation of politics and public opinion, but also to just the general cultural values. And mostly you were simply fascinated. You thought these newspapers are the stuff of life. Exactly. And, you know, they were absolutely crucial. I mean, the Victorians were obsessed with their newspapers and their news and, you know, news from parliament and politics and laws, but they were also obsessed with crime news. The other thing that, uh, you know, the creation of the police force the Metropolitan Police Force in 1828, extremely widened the number of offenses that were crimes. So, you know, for the first time, believe it or not, public drunkenness became a crime. Part of the the idea of the, the, the police and the creation of these courts was to police what, you know, the upper classes saw as the mob you know, this huge number of people living, particularly in London and other, and other metropoli, who were just getting out of hand because they would do things like, <laughs> uh, and this became illegal, play bowling in the streets or, you know, <laughs> sell vegetables and meat and live chicken, right, in the streets. Suddenly you had to have a license for that. You couldn't just go bowling in the street, right, because you might bowl into a middle-class, uh, you know, child. <laughs> so... You know, when you see these crime news, yes, they're often, you know, murders, robberies, but a lot of them are also just petty crimes. Isn't that interesting that you get this glimpse from 200 years ago of how a police force begets a set of laws that criminalize people, right? You know, right at a time when we're rethinking so much about police and use of force and imprisonment. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was, I mean, it was overt that that is what the police force was created to do. It wasn't created to, you know, police the middle classes. It was created to police the underclass, the, the people who couldn't vote, the people who were increasingly during the 1830s and 1840s becoming politically radicalized. 
Uh, because this was the time when you had the first sort of labor unions being formed. You had the, the first sort of working class uh, agitations for the franchise. All of this was happening during the 1830s and 40s when newspapers were exploding because printing technology wildly advanced. Suddenly, you know, you could print a lot of newspapers for a lot of people. So who was doing the reporting on these crime stories? And what sort of crime stories were they tantalizing the public with in these papers? Well, it changed. <laughs> a lot of the crime news had been written by what people call penny aligners. And they were called penny aligners because they were paid literally a penny per line. These were hacks, basically. Uh, you know, working class writers who often also wrote like sensational penny novels and things like that. And they tended to have a not very sympathetic view of the court system and uh, the, you know, the newly created police. So in the 1830s and increasingly in the 1840s, members of the judicial community began to advocate for the news report to be done by lawyers who were already hanging around the court. In the English system, you have these people called barristers who don't argue cases. They just fill out documents and stuff. So they started writing the reports with the encouragement of a man called Henry Brougham, who was the Lord Chief Justice, right? So in 1839, you have this pamphlet published, uh, and it's called, I'll read you just the title, The Fourth Estate or the Moral Influence of the Press by a Student at Law. And it basically says, look, we need to be writing the news about the courts or we're going to look really bad. And so from the 1840s to 1850s, you began to have uh, the barristers writing a lot of the news. And what were they writing? Were they more interesting or just more accurate than the penny-aligned people? They couldn't really change the tone too much because the tone had already been set by the penny-aligners. They still had to go for, you know, the sensational the comic aspects of uh, things, because that's what people wanted. I mean, it's the same thing today, right? It's not news if a building doesn't fall down. If a building goes up in flames or collapses spontaneously, that's news. <laughs> so the tone didn't change as much. It became more accurate. You've said that actually a lot of our favorite novels and true crime podcasts owe a lot to these crime stories that were the bread and butter of London newspapers back then? How so? Yeah, um, well, some of the most best-selling sensation novels of the 1860s are uh, written. Uh, a good example is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, who was a you know, best friend of Charles Dickens. Another was Lady Audley's Secret, written by Mary Elizabeth Braddon wildly best-selling novels, and they're all about sort of crimes and scandals. Well, the reason I'm mentioning them is that both of those novels were based upon reports from the newspapers, you know, little, you know, nuggets. And the authors looked at them and said, aha, there's an 800-page novel behind this. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of these, are you've said, are serialized accounts of crimes in the papers, and people would read them hungrily day after day or week after week. What sort of stories did they cover like that? Probably the most famous of, uh, you know, the serialized murders would have been uh, the Jack the Ripper murders in the 1890s. And that went on right. for years. But even before that, there was, uh, for example, the case of a man named Corvassier. He was a butler who actually murdered his master, uh, Lord John Russell, a member of Parliament, member of the House of Lords. And, you know, that murder of Russell was reported. Then Corvassier was arrested, and then there were reports of the trial and all the lurid details. And uh, that went on for um, like two months. And maybe that's sort of a, a natural balance, right, that emerges. So you have the upper crust, and then you have the rise of a very balancing influence in this energetic press. You know, part of the combativeness of that critique of the upper classes really goes back to um, what scholars call the war of the unstamped press between 1830 and 1836. And the short and sweet of this is that 
Starting back in 1814, the British government had passed laws that put a six-penny tax on news overtly to try to keep the newly radicalized and newly literate working class from getting political news. Really? It was for that reason? Yes. I mean, it's, it's written into the law explicitly, <laughs> right, that we're trying to price news out of the hands of anybody who isn't at least middle class. There was real concern that there could be a working class revolution in Britain. But a lot of working class newspapers just defied the law. They moved presses back and forth across the Thames River. That's how devoted they were to it. And they just published uh, penny or halfpenny papers that included political news sort of hidden among crime news. They sold wildly. They outsold the Times of London to the extent that in 1836, the British government said, we give up, we can't beat them, we're going to join them. They lowered the tax on news from six pence to one pence. And then by 1853, they just completely abolished it. That was a win, really, for the working class and the radicals to slant newspapers and the press towards uh, a sort of advocacy for the lower classes, I would say, in ways that I think we may not be familiar with or may not have expected, right? The British press evolved during the Victorian period really as a fight, not simply for the right to vote by the working class people, but for the right to read news and read newspapers. And you see that combativeness to this day. Oh, absolutely. If you think back to those taxes on knowledge, you know, the stamp duties, I mean, that's sort of the equivalent in some ways of, say, paywalls today. Yeah. I mean, it's the same effect, but in the Victorian period, it was overtly intended to block people's access. In the Victorian period, that paywall, if we may use that, you know, contemporary analogy, was intentionally there to oppress and sort of disenfranchise from news the working class. And what I find fascinating is they lost. It took six years for them to lose <laughs> uh, and for the working class newspapers to win and essentially become their tone, their attitude, um, and their interests, say, in you know parrot cases or reports of uh, murders or... Um, in many cases, uh, abuses by the police force itself, to become the mainstream. But you're reminding me of how worrisome it is that we have all these paywalls. On an internet, we would you know, prefer to be free, right, for all of us. But what are the unintended consequences when we price people out of access to excellent news coverage? Yes, and I think we could go back to the Victorians and learn a lesson, which is that it's not good. And <laughs> also people will find a way around it. And I think, you know, the danger for us today is that people will find ways around those paywalls that may be less productive. In other words, if you can't get the Washington Post, then okay, I'll read somebody's Facebook post. Uh, and I think that's far less productive, far less reliable than the kind of news, real news, good reporting. Uh, it's, a, it, it's, an old, uh, it's an old sort of struggle, I think, between access and also really between entertainment and information. Ed Jacobs, thank you for sharing your insights with me today and with good reason. Thank you very much. Ed Jacobs is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. England's Industrial Revolution displaced people from rural land. Suddenly, public plots of land where people had been growing food were fenced off and privatized. Fishing and hunting, really just grabbing dinner, became a crime. Katie Castellano is a professor of English at James Madison University. She shares with us the story of Robert Wedderburn, a Jamaican-born man who brought the idea of provision gardens to poor Englishmen who were laboring in the new factories of London. 
Katie, help me understand this man, Robert Wedderburn, who was born in Jamaica and later came to have a profound influence on people in England. Well, um, I... For my research, I am analyzing the periodicals and pamphlets of lower class British writers, and I came across his writing, and it made me see the Romantic period in a whole new light. Uh, We tend to see that period through the eyes of white writers like Wordsworth or Lord Byron or Jane Austen, but Wedderburn is living and writing in London, and he has an entirely different perspective because of his background. Uh, He was born in Jamaica, and his father was a plantation owner. His mother, Joanna, was enslaved by his father. And although he was um, set free by his father at the age of three, he grew up with enslaved people and he saw the kind of brutal everyday practices that they were exposed to. He left Jamaica with the Royal Navy. He signed up and joined and was on a, a ship. And when he docked in London, he got off that ship and he never went back to Jamaica. When was he born? What era was this? He was born in the um, late 1700s, so in 1762, and he died in 1835 or 6. What kind of platform did he have? How did he become an influential man writing about the atrocities committed by slave owners against enslaved people, but also by business owners and powerful government interests against the common folk. Well, in London, Wedderburn became involved with ultra-radical groups who were working for the rights of lower-class people um, to vote, um, to have more access to land for farming. Um, He was also involved with uh, people fighting for um, Irish rights. And um, there he started to hold public debates. He had a conversion experience. He became an ordained minister, although that was often just a cover for um, political speech that was considered sedition. You could be imprisoned for it, but if you were a minister, it gave you some immunity to that. And he held these public debates and published pamphlets that were very influential among other radicals. England was in a lot of of turmoil. This is just the very beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. There are masses of people moving into from rural places into the cities to find work. The commons in rural places are being enclosed and people no longer have access to land. And um, he enters a world of the um, radicals and ultra-radicals who were meeting in London, who were plotting ways to um, get more rights for everyday lower-class people. Help me understand the commons. What had been the commons in England, and why were they closing them? The commons were areas of land that were located throughout rural England um, that weren't owned by anybody. They were just part of the village, and they were places that people could um, keep a cow, keep some geese. Um, They could uh, communally grow food for subsistence. They could gather wood for fire. This meant that they were not dependent on wage labor for their everyday living. And when the commons were enclosed, it detached people from those communities that farmed together, but also detached them from the land. Why did they close the commons? Was it a good idea? The commons were enclosed in some ways out of necessity. There were developments in technology like the seed drill um, and crop rotation that allowed for greater productivity. And with the burgeoning populations in urban centers, people just needed to grow more food. There were lots of food shortages and people needed to be fed. So the intention um, in many ways was good. But the fallout, particularly for lower class people living in these rural areas, was um, that they were thrown off of the land that their family may have spent generations on. Didn't they realize that they were cutting people off from their livelihoods and the ability to sustain themselves? Didn't they realize that was a problem? 
I think that that was part of the point because um, with the rise of the cotton gin and um, the industrial centers in Manchester that are making cloth, you need a workforce. And if a workforce is able to sustain themselves in a rural area, they're not going to come to the cities and work for a wage. So that detachment of people from the rural land um, actually forced them to move into the cities and into wage labor in the, the growing factories. Where did Robert Wedderburn stand on all this? What was he saying about the loss of the commons and the loss of the ability to grow your own food? He is really drawing on the strong examples of his mother and his grandmother and of the provision grounds in Jamaica when he's thinking about land as a source of freedom. Now, the provision grounds were plots that were set apart from the plantations that allowed enslaved people to grow their own food. These plots were located on the edges of plantations. They were only located in places that couldn't be used for sugar. So they were often on the edges of mountains. Sometimes they were five or 10 miles away from the plantation. And when enslaved people went to work on these plots, they could grow the kind of food that they wanted, yams and taro and pigeon peas. And they also had time to be together communally. And so these, these plots, even though they were arranged by the enslavers, they actually are turned into a mode of freedom. Jamaica in particular had thriving internal markets where the produce from these provision grounds was bought and sold. It wasn't just food exchanging hands. It was radical ideas of insurrection that was being passed back and forth at these markets too. The second example that Wedderburn gives is of the Maroons, enslaved people who had taken flight from the British. But what Wedderburn emphasizes is that they had local ecological knowledge. They knew, I call it um, guerrilla foraging. They knew that their freedom depended on knowing what buds they could forage, what roots they could forage, right? how they could live off of the land. Wedderburn is recommending these tactics to his white audience in London. How so? How do you translate that to England? And what did he advocate they do to achieve it? Well, <laughs> the title of one of his debates was, Can it be murder to kill a tyrant? Here he is representing himself as someone who had been born to an enslaved person in Jamaica and is arguing that enslaved people have a right to rebel and kill the planters. But he was being watched by spies in England and actually was later imprisoned because this was seen as dangerous because even though ostensibly he was talking about enslaved people in England, they knew that he was also talking to laboring class people in England saying, take a, take a cue from slave revolts, take a cue from these practices of freedom from Jamaica and um, fight back against your oppressors this way. How, how did people respond to Wedderburn? Is there any knowledge of whether they embraced his views? People would have been baffled from, by him. Uh, his lower class readers would have thought of England as the seat of freedom. They would have had their complaints that they um, were starving and that they couldn't vote, but they still would have thought of England as the seat of great liberal freedoms. And so for him to, to come in and say, you should take a cue, take a page from enslaved people in Jamaica, that would be something I think that would be difficult for them to understand. And yet he must have been influential because of the spies that were watching him, but also a very famous caricaturist from the period, George Cruikshank, featured him prominently in two caricatures. One is called A Peep in the London Tavern. He is on the table in the center of this room and Robert Owen is giving a talk. He was really the first socialist. Robert Wedderburn is next to him, putting one foot on the table, ready to get up on the table. And the, the thought bubble that the, or the word bubble that's coming out of his mouth says, I understand slavery well. My mother was a slave. This would be but an improved system of slavery. 
Wedderburn thought that freedom was tied to the ability to produce your own food and for the land. So right. in another publication of his, he actually called Owen a tool of the landholders because he was not advocating for redistributing land um, and allowing people to have access to it to grow their own food. Do you think Wedderburn has his rightful place in history? I mean, is he well-known enough for this era? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that he has a amazing intellectual theory of the commons, of people owning land together, and about the importance of food security. I feel like this is something that's really missing from the time period, especially when you consider romanticism as a time period where people focus on someone like Wordsworth or Byron. I mean, they were advocating for the common person and for a renewed relationship to nature. Well, I would edit that and say Wordsworth, but what Wedderburn is bringing with him is this knowledge, you know, this Afro-Caribbean knowledge from Jamaica that is so much more deeply and practically <laughs> attached to the land. How did you come across him? This was not somebody you had been studying until you did come across him. Yes. So I've been working on a project on um, the enclosure of the commons in England and the way that writers resisted that enclosure and tried to create new commons. So things that are, are owned communally instead of privatized. And I came across Wedderburn while I was looking at the periodicals and pamphlets of lower class uh, British writers. Well, fascinated me about this is the way in which he was championing the ideas of enslaved people to a white audience. It really flies in the face of what I had known about abolition, which was the idea that white um, advocates like William Wilberforce advocated for people in the West Indies to be uh, emancipated. But you, here you see a black intellectual in the early 1800s who's bringing his own ideas into London and being influential enough that the government is spying on him and he's showing up in caricatures from the period. And so what I would like to see is for people to take his thought, what we know of it, a, a bit more seriously. Because he was certainly taken seriously by the spies who were watching him. Well, Katie Castellano, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Katie Castellano is a professor of English at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Did you ever notice how returning to your favorite novels and movies from childhood can be enlightening? You pick up on the dirty jokes. You notice how eerily those movies and books predicted the future. And you notice what they were trying to teach. Deanna Stover is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University who specializes in children's literature. She says the golden age of children's literature was during the Victorian era, and the books were all about controlling the power dynamic between adults and children. Deanna, tell me about what you call the golden age of children's literature. What was the golden age? When was that? The golden age of children's literature was basically started in 1865 with Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And it was like a shift away from more educative or didactic text to something a little more playful and fun and weird. Um, yeah. You know, so, <laughs> they're right. all weird. But it wasn't until 1865 when um, books started to be less about educating children and more about entertaining them. Give me an idea of a book pre-Golden Age that was about educating children and showing them right and wrong? Yeah, well, we can even start with John Newberry's. Um, he wrote a little pretty pocketbook, and it came with this little ball that had two sides, and you were supposed to stick pins in it for when you were good and when you were bad. Oh, gosh. So, yeah. 
So it was like a way to visualize how good and bad you were, but it was also supposed to be fun. When we get into later children's literature, it's just more playful and fun. I mean, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is a perfect example and why it really starts the golden age, just because it's full of riddles and confusing wordplay that Lewis Carroll kind of creates for the child. And it's making fun of those moral didactic texts. That's the whole point of it. Was Alice in Wonderland wildly popular right when it came out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People would buy like little teacups of with Alice on it. Like there were tons if they were, of illustrated editions that would come out. So it was it was incredibly popular. So was it so popular that others mimicked it, and other books quickly came out by other authors? that followed that same playful, quixotic line? Yeah, I mean, nothing quite reached up to Lewis Carroll's um, wordplay. I think there was also this bent of realism in children's literature at the time. So Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass had the fantasy of, of other texts which were popular, but there was also this, like, need to have um, this kind of realistic world, too, especially for girls. But... Also for boys, it would just be, you know, a fantasy of adventure fiction where they were like sailing the seas, but it wasn't um, quite as crazy as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is. So what were some of these that followed? Well, things like Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, which had already, it builded on a tradition of adventure fiction for boys, but it was really the a very popular book. Peter Pan is my ultimate favorite which of course is about um, a boy who comes to Wendy's window and takes her to his um, island. And it is a magical book of never growing up. But of course, Wendy does grow up in the end, right? She has to. Peter Pan doesn't, but um, but Wendy must grow up, um, which is the whole point of the book, really. But it was magical. <laughs> what do you think grown-ups were thinking about children during this period, were they seeing children as little adults who should be seen and not heard and quickly adopt adult ways? Or were they trying to prolong a fantasy, magical childhood for them? Oh, yeah. It was really important to have more of a childhood. Now, it was no longer the seen and not heard feeling of before with John Newberry's little pincushion. It was more about having children play and um, they were becoming future citizens, but they were, and they were full of innocence and joy. Um, That's how adults kind of imagined children at the time. I mean, there's all of these instances of encouraging children to play with not only, um, you know, toys, but also making their own or even using household items to engage with play. There's all of these different examples of how children were encouraged to use, you know, all of these household items to create toy worlds that were exciting and fun, but were also training them to be future citizens because they had to think about, you know, property and and sharing and working with other children. So it was educational at the same time that it was like supposed to be joyful. Edith Nesbitt, who was um, a wildly popular female writer at the time, wrote The Magic City in 1910, which is a story about building toy worlds. And then she also wrote a companion book called Wings and the Child, which gave instructions for how to build these toy worlds on nursery floors. H.G. Wells also wrote Floor Games in 1911, which basically does the same thing, right? It's about watching his sons play with toy soldiers and civilian miniatures and kind of creating these vast islands across the nursery floor. You know, they're subjugating populations, which is terrible, you know, to think about. But it was part of this imperial agenda that was what Wells was imagining, right? This way to engage children in the empire. What was happening in terms of the obsession with war during the Victorian era in the adult world and then mirrored in the children's world. I mean, this was the time of imperialism, right? So there were all of these wars, these what people can call mini wars, but they weren't. They were, people were dying. And actually there were a lot of these maps in the periodical press of the time, the magazines of the time that would depict war and you were supposed to play with them. There was actually a map in the Daily Mirror of the Russo-Japanese War 
and it had toy soldiers that you could cut out and play with. So adults were thinking about war as a game to be played too, right? But children were too, like a lot of the adventure novels that they had read talk about violence. And there were even board games about war for kids. Oh, yeah. Um, There were lots of board games. Board games, especially imperial kinds of board games, were really popular. One that I do know of is that in Pearson's magazine, they published a board game about the Second Boer War, which was actually just, it was just like a paper board game instead of something that we're used to seeing, like cardboard, which also did exist. You played at being both the Boers and also um, the English who were fighting. You know, you would take on the role of the other and also, you know, of the imperialist. Was this also reflected in literature or books about playing war for children? In Floor Games and Little Wars, for sure, and in Stevenson at Play. All, all three of those works are really, really engaged in how war plays out on nursery floors and how they're preparing men either. And Wells, he, Wells kind of thought, thought of himself as a pacifist. So he thought that like the more you played at these little wars, the less likely you would be to engage in real war. But that's not really how it played out, right? Because wars continued and boys continued to play at both real war and at fake war. The Brontes were also thinking about war. They created this vast imaginary world with, I mean, thousands of pages. It's humongous. And they wrote poetry and prose in these tiny little magazines. They were little books, barely fit in your hand, tiny little script that you basically need a magnifying glass to read. And they wrote these books as if they were toy soldier size, right? And they imagined themselves as kings and queens and genies who could bring back toy soldiers from the dead, but who also told of endless wars. So it was a fascinating piece of history that we have with this childhood writing. Even when they were young, they were thinking about literature, but also that they, it had a very militaristic bend. It sounds like the equivalent now of people worried about the influence of video games that are all about doom and gloom, right? And what will the influence be on kids? It might have, yeah. I mean, a lot of these children's periodicals like morphed into different things as time went on. But yeah, the the fear of video games, the fear of violent play are really, really common now. But it's historical. People have been doing these, these games and this violent play forever, really, you know? It's just that now we have more of a visualization where you can actually see it happening, which is what people are so scared of, right? They think that you'll desensitize yourself from from violence. But in some ways, when you abstract violence and there's no blood or gore, it kind of distances it even more, right? If you're just imagining like toy deaths and they mean nothing versus like seeing someone actually hurts on screen, Isn't there kind of this interesting difference because you actually get to feel, hopefully, the you know, with empathy, the kind of pain that someone's feeling rather than this kind of abstracted toy? Deanna Stover is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. Whether or not you've been to London, the idea of London fog probably has a romantic feel to it. But our next guest notes that London fog, like so many other things we romanticize, is actually the result of pollution. Margaret Conkle is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. Margaret, what are the ways that through the centuries we've looked sort of benignly on something we've called London fog? and sort of romanticized it until we realized it was just toxic smog. Well, there's fog. Fog, which is a totally natural phenomenon. It's just clouds touching the ground. And then there's London fog. And London fog is not natural, but it's been around since nearly the 17th century. So it kind of feels like it's always been here. It's really iconic. You know, I think of London fog in a kind of romantic way. I think of London Fog and, you know, the, the the businessmen in their smart suits and their black umbrellas. 
the London Fog line of raincoats, yeah. right, and other clothing. <laughs> yeah, the trench coat had one of those when I was a child. Um, I've also drunk many a London Fog steamed milk with Earl Grey. We've probably all read in high school T.S. Eliot, a crowd of men, something or other, walked over London Bridge. I never thought so many had been undone. But we can go back even earlier. We can go back to painters of the 19th century and to writers of the 19th century, like the great realist novelist um, Charles Dickens. So in Bleak House, in the first chapter, he's describing smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes. Gone is a morning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Right. So just imagine that description of how particulate matter is coming down from chimney pots. But he shifts it. He takes us into this soft black drizzle and these flakes of soot. Um, then he's describing it like full-grown snowflakes. So he's trying to naturalize it. He is naturalizing it because it's nature and culture mixing together there. Is he weighing in on how people have made misery of their environment in London? Or is he just simply describing what he thinks he knows, do you think? He's not really an environmentalist complaining about no, this. No, and we didn't have the climate science then to back these ways of seeing up. So he was describing everyday experience. This is like looking at the archive of everyday life. And Londoners, they thought of this as grimy and dirty. Um, in another novel, Great Expectations, Pip, the main character, says, after this escape, I was content to take a foggy view of the inn, and I decided that London was, quote-unquote, like decidedly overrated. There's an early episode of The Crown and a scene involving the great smog of 1952 Thousands of Londoners actually died from five days of this smog that just descended and stayed on London. Yeah, that is an awesome episode. In that particular episode, you see how the environment, how real like pollution affects everyone. It, it links everyone together. You can't get outside of air. And in the course of the episode, you see this sort of disaster brought into really local people's lives, walking down the street you can't see a lorry. It's dim and dark as night in the middle of the day. That's actually a, a real historical event that happened. It was called the Great Smog of London, 1952, and it lasted for about five days. And as a consequence of that, there was the, a Clean Air Act passed in 1955 and a huge transformation, really, of air quality in London because no one wanted that kind of disaster to happen again. Thousands and thousands of people died. But it wasn't just in London. There were incidents like this in America. There was a famous horrifying one about five years before this in a steel town in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And air quality has been a problem in America in, in many cities and also in not cities. Because uh, I don't think we, well, we seem to think of pollution and air pollution as something that touches everybody's lives, rural, um, rural and city alike. And uh, I think of this poet, Muriel Rickheiser. She's a terrific poet, and she was writing in the 30s. Um, she did this project on an industrial disaster that happened in West Virginia. And it was the Gawley Bridge disaster. A tunnel collapsed on some miners and released silica. And she went to uh, West Virginia and took these testimonials from dying miners and from their families who had no name for what was happening to them, but they described coming out of the tunnel covered in this white snow. It was so beautiful to them. They, um, they saw it as a sort of a shimmering, beautiful encasing, but they knew they were dying from it too. They knew initially that it was bad for them or they found out later? Well, that's one of the great tragedies, Sarah. Until we had more workers' protections, these workers didn't know what had happened, what it was, what kind of dangers that they were subject to. And there were things that could have been done. Water could have been sprayed on walls to keep this dust down. But for industry and greed and profit and speed, it wasn't. And so these people were just um, exposed to undue harm. And then this disaster just ate through the community. And it really affected workers who needed this money in the Depression. How did you come across this? Do you remember when you first realized this wonderful poet had given life to this human tragedy? Yeah, I mean, reading Muriel Rickheiser in graduate school, she, um, she kind of rocked my world in that way. She's a documentary poet, which means 
Like Dickens, she wants to write about real events. It's a way of seeing the world, of recording, not through data, but through lyric, everyday experience. Um, and then the way, same way an ethnographer writes down people's um, testimonials, she did that with poetry. And we need art. We need it before we need the data because climate change is a cultural problem before an environmental problem because until we can see the world and have better relationships with it, um, until we have um, new aesthetic categories or ways of viewing the effects of our, um, of our human activity, we, we can't understand its impact. I know you're also a big fan of a Canadian photographer who spent decades documenting factories, trash piles, quarries, dams, sort of telling the story of our planet destructively reshaped by us, right? So that he's especially doing these vast aerial views of people living in a kind of harmonious squalor. Oh, yeah. Ed Bertinsky's work is kind of life-changing. So these, seeing these up in a gallery wall, they are these giant photographs that could not have been taken without the sort of new technologies that we have now. They are of quarries and mines and landfills and oil spills. And they are these shimmering, just beautiful, incandescent kind of images. And they're intricate. And they kind of testify to human impact in this, and it's awe-inspiring, and it's also monstrous. And if you and I were to, like Sarah, walk through a space like this, we would not be able to see it in the same way we can see it from these total views. And um, his work is so important for that change in our perception. I love the way you have noticed and others have noticed how powerful it is to have photographers, painters, artists, poets, writers interpreting, you know, what we're doing to our, env our environment. Um, whether they're spelling it out or not, it gives us a way of viewing what we're in and what we've been in, right? Yeah. I mean, literature and art, they are archives of everyday life. And writers particularly have this great gift for description and for getting inside the mind, like the zeitgeist of the time. And so, yeah, Dickens didn't have the word pollution in the same way we use it now. He wasn't an environmentalist. Um, Pip wasn't railing against the coal industry or something like that. But he was describing and he was registering something really unpleasant and describing it as gritty, as dark, and as affecting everyone's lives. I mean, fog is like a real character in the sense of it affects how people live their lives in his novels. An environment is big. Nature is big. It's not just animals. It's not just landscape. It's air. It's water. It's this networked effect of how all these things and of how we are interrelated with it. I mean, Sarah, like you and I are porous, like um, the air I'm breathing and the air you're breathing, like we're sharing all of this. We're infinitely connected. Um, there is a poet named Juliana Spar, and she has this book called This Connection with Everyone with Lungs. And it's this incredible meditation on our connectedness. You know, it makes me think about that wonderful feeling the day and the day after it snows. And you feel like, you know, a blanket of pure goodness has descended on everything. There was sort of a moment of that at the beginning of the pandemic, at the point when everybody went home. And then we realized, huh, the world stopped. We're not on the streets. We're not polluting our cities. And we actually saw measurable results in nature. Yeah, I was just thinking yes. about that. And I remember at the time, too, that just the brilliance of, of spring, it was just, it seemed to blossom in intensity. Everything was greener and pinker and whiter right. um, than I'd ever recognized because I had slowed down and there was no one driving. I could hear the birds. And it was like one big painterly lesson for all of us. And we started saying, whoa, we thought we could never reverse this, but look, maybe we can. Yeah, there's a lushness to that. Um, and there's also kind of a falseness to it too, because how do we stop the airplanes? Like we need these. We this is we are completely an oil economy. We are a globalized world. Everything is in transit and in movement. So I think we're really in a very complicated place. We had that perceptual moment. We saw that. 
And now it's kind of up to us to figure out how do we get from here to there without, yeah, without losing the best things in our sort of, that we've developed in our cultures. I was going to say one other thing too, though, that image of snow, Juliana Spar describes the way that the, that New York was covered in sort of like a white dust after 9-11. And that same kind of recourse, I think we have to metaphors of the natural world to describe things that are intensely unnatural. Uh, And that sense of, as you said, like snow connects us um, or pollen (laughs) connecting us um, through our mutual sneezing. Um, Or the miners finding the silica beautiful, right? Yes, yes. Finding beautiful the thing that ends up killing us is um, especially tragic and moving. It is. Uh, We can't look away from it. And I think that that's maybe another thing that art gives us is that it makes it palatable to be able to contemplate. Uh, Well, Margaret, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Well, thank you, Sarah, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Margaret Kunkel is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.